hey, and all the people said, amen. amen. Great, great song. Good to see everybody this morning. We're glad to welcome you to our service on all you folks across the street in the video venue and joining us online. It's great to be back after being gone for a couple of weeks. I'm thankful for Chad and my son Andrew filling the pulpit while I was gone. And as was mentioned earlier, this weekend we're going to kick off a brand new sermon series called What If... So if you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. When you get to the book of Psalms, I want you to find Psalm 71 and just hold that ready. We're going to be looking at Psalm 71 today in this uh, first weekend of this new series called What If. If that sounds familiar to you, uh, then there's a reason why, because I did a sermon series called What If back in 2013. And I know that every one of you here remember every single thing that I've ever said and ever preached about before. So I know it probably sounds familiar to some of you, but I enjoyed that so much, I just thought we'd do a, an updated version in 2016, so that's what's behind this. While I was away, I read a book that recounted the story of how in 1963, a MIT meteorologist named Edward Lorenz presented a hypothesis to the New York Academy of Science saying that a minor event like the flapping of a butterfly's wing in Brazil, could conceivably alter wind currents sufficiently enough to cause a tornado in Texas. Now, that sounds crazy when you first read it. Absolutely nuts. But over the course of time, his theory began to gain traction in the academic community and eventually became known as something called the butterfly effect. He stumbled onto this theory when one day on a prototype computer program he had designed to simulate and forecast weather systems, instead of entering .506127, the number he had used in an earlier trial, he rounded it to the nearest thousandth and entered .506, thinking that such a small change would be absolutely inconsequential. But he was wrong. And when he came back later and he checked the program, he found a radical difference in simulated weather conditions because of that tiny, tiny change. And so he wrote, the numerical difference between the original number and the rounded number was the equivalent of a puff of wind, but the net difference was the equivalent of a catastrophic weather event. And so his ultimate conclusion was, and I'll put it on the screen for you to see, minuscule changes in input can make a macroscopic difference in output or outcome. Or in other words, even the smallest change can sometimes have a dramatic difference on the outcome of whatever it is you're involved in. And so here's the deal. If something like that is true for science, then I really believe that it's true for life as well. And what that means is that every one of us this morning has the power to completely change our lives, and oftentimes that change can come with a very small difference in the way we choose to live our lives. And that's really what's behind this whole What If series the power to change your life. And this morning, folks, I'm talking about any part of your life. In fact, think about your life just for a moment. Everything from your physical life to uh, your mental life, your emotional life, your professional life, your married life, your family life. I'm talking about the totality of your life. 
The power to change your life, any part of your life, can be as simple as making one decision. It can be as simple as taking one risk. It can be as simple as embracing one new idea. It can be as simple as committing to one act of obedience in your life. And the one thing that we're going to talk about this weekend that we can all embrace as we kick off this new study is a commitment to being more thankful, a commitment to living more thankful lives. The message this morning is called, What If I Were More Thankful? I read a study this past week, and I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it with me, that said 50% of our propensity for happiness is based on a genetic set point, or in other words, based on something you can't change and you have uh, very little control or influence over. The study goes on to say that 10% of our propensity for happiness is based on life circumstances. Now, let's just acknowledge that there are some aspects of the circumstances in our lives that we have control over, but also there are things, there are circumstances in our lives that we don't have any control over, right? And so it's, it's kind of an unknown. Uh, you know, I'm talking about things like uh, uh, getting a promotion at work. You, you may or may not have total control over that. Finding Mr. Right, you may or may not have total control over that. Achieving a, a goal somehow, you may or may not have complete control over that. 10%. The study went on to say that 40% of our propensity for happiness is based on intentional activity that we influence with our behavior. What does that mean? That means that we can be 40% happier in our lives every one of us, without changing our circumstances, which is not the way we normally view happiness. We normally think in in these kinds of terms, I will be happier if something changes in my life. I will be happier if my circumstances change. I'll be happier if I can get this promotion at work. I'll be happier if I can make more money. I'll be happier if I had a newer house or a different house. I'll be happier if this person in my life got their act together, and on and on and on. We think about happiness dependent upon circumstances, but this study is saying that we can be 40% happy in our lives without our circumstances changing at all. All we have to really do is change our attitude. That means, for example... That we can be 40% happy in our lives by just simply choosing to be more thankful. And I say that because there's so much evidence in the world today about the positive benefits of being thankful. In fact, go home today or at some time in the next few days and you've got a few extra minutes, sit down at your computer or open up your laptop and just Google this phrase, being thankful improves your life and see what comes up. Being thankful improves your life. You're going to find things like this, scientific proof that being thankful improves your health, seven scientifically proven benefits of gratitude, the 31 benefits of gratitude you didn't know about, a dose of gratitude, how being thankful can keep you healthy, and on and on and on. There's no shortage of evidence in the world today that being thankful can dramatically improve many aspects of your life. But even with all of that, there's another more important reason why you and I need to embrace thankfulness, why we need to make the decision today to be more thankful in our lives. And it doesn't have anything to do with scientific or sociological or experiential evidence. The most important reason why we need to choose to be more thankful is because the Bible makes it absolutely clear that thankfulness, being thankful, is the will of God for all of us, every last one of us. 
In fact, look at these words Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 on the screen. Read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all. Everyone say all. All circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus. It is the will of God for us to live thankful lives. That's what God wants for every one of us. How many of you know that there are aspects of the will of God that are universal in that they're the same for all of us? And this is one of them. God wants all of us. God wants all of us to be more thankful. One of the passages of Scripture that has always provided motivation for me when it comes to living a thankful life is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, don't turn there, but if I were to turn there, in my NIV Bible that I'm using today, the chapter heading for 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Godlessness in the last days. That sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Godlessness in the last days. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here this morning who would want some kind of an a character trait or some kind of activity that you're involved in in your life to be listed in a passage of Scripture that has the heading godlessness in the last days? Absolutely not. We would be mortified if we were involved in something that the Bible called godlessness. But listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the first four verses. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I don't know what you would do when you read a passage like that, but here's what I have the tendency to do. I have the tendency to read a passage of Scripture like that and then kind of put myself up next to it and see if there's any crossover. And so I look at this uh, passage of Scripture, and I, I start to go down the list, and I think, okay, no, 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 no. Wait, what? Because I'm not always as thankful as I should be. My life does not always manifest the reality of gratefulness and thankfulness the way that it should or in a way that really honors God And so that's a big deal. By the way, if you're a parent and your kids are still at home, uh, just circle the fact that it says disobedient to parents in that godlessness list there too and check one for you. (laughs) So what do we need to do? How How do we live more thankful lives? Well, we need to make thankfulness a habit. We need to make thankfulness a choice that we make over and over again until it just becomes a natural part of our lives and a natural part of who we are. But that's not as simple as it sounds because being thankful doesn't always come naturally to everyone. There's a great story in the Gospel of Luke in the 17th chapter. You probably are familiar with the story. Jesus is going along one day and he encounters 10 lepers that are coming toward him. You remember this story? And as they come toward him, they cry out, have pity on us. And Jesus, he just jumps right to the need and he immediately responds by saying, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they began to make their way to the priest, all of them were supernaturally healed. Immediately, they were supernaturally, incredible miracle, supernaturally healed. But only one of them, upon realizing that he had been healed, returned to say thank you to Jesus. Only one out of the ten. Now, what is the message that screams off the page when you read that story? The message is being thankful puts you in the minority. Why? 
because it's just not something that comes naturally to all of us. It's something that we've got to work on. We've got to figure out what we need to do to live more thankful lives. Well, fortunately, I think the Bible helps us with that, and that brings us to Psalm 71, if you've got your Bibles open there, because uh, while I'm, I'm not going to do an exposition of the entire psalm, I'm not going to go verse by verse through it. We're going to read it here in just a moment, and I'm going to pull some principles, what I think are some powerful principles from Psalm 71 that teach us really practical things we can do to begin to live more thankful lives. So, having said that, stand together with me wherever you are uh, for the public reading of Scripture. We make this a part of our service every week. It's a powerful, significant part of our service. And you follow along as I read. There are 24 verses in Psalm 71. I'm only going to read 19, but it's still a little bit longer passage than we normally read. But you follow along. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of evil and cruel men. For you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I become like a strong portent to many. That's a word that basically means example or witness. I have become like a, like a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, O my God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things, who, O God, is like you. Okay, there it is. May God add his blessing on the reading of his words. You can be seated this morning. I could spend all day talking about Psalm 71, but as I mentioned, I'm just going to pull out some truths from this psalm that give us some very practical reasons, or excuse me, uh, lessons about how to live more thankful lives. So let's dive in. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, because this is so practical and relevant to all of us, write down next to number one, start being thankful for who you are. That's number one. Start being thankful for who you are. Here's a good question for all of us. Is there anything about yourself this morning that you'd like to change? Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? And now, I'm not just talking about our physical lives. I'm talking about uh, every part of our life, you know, the totality of our being. Anything about your life you'd like to change? You remember a few years ago when all these makeover shows really were popular on television? I think the first one was Extreme Makeover. It was an ABC show. I used to watch those shows. I was fascinated to see how dissatisfied so many people were with their lives and the complete transformation oftentimes that would be made. But all of us have things that we don't like about ourselves. Uh, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or whatever. We want to be taller. We want to be thinner. We want to be richer. We want to be better looking. We want to be more outgoing. We want to be more talented. We want to be more, have more intellectual capacity. We want to, whatever. 
You fill in the blank. It's any number of things because most of us are dissatisfied with our lives at least on some level. But the fact of the matter is, we have to embrace this. The fact of the matter is, God made us just the way we are and we need to find a way to be thankful for that. One of David's most famous and most beloved psalms is Psalm 139, and rightly so, because it's just a beautiful passage of Scripture. Listen to what he writes in verses 13 through 17. He says to God, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's talking about the work of God, the majestic work of God in the creation of our lives. The psalmist wrote the same thing basically in Psalm 71. Look at verse 6. He just did it with an economy of effort. He just used much fewer uh, words. He says, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. Basically, if I were to put that in my own words, he's saying, God, you've been with me from birth. You've cared for me from the time I left my mother's womb until today. There's nothing about me that's an accident. There's nothing about me that's an afterthought. I am who you created me to be. And so all of us need to find a way to accept the fact on some level that God made us the way we are. Everything about our lives was ordained by God. He chose our parents. He chose the day of our birth, our birthday. He, he chose our physical attributes. He chose our gifts. He chose our in intellectual capacity and on and on. We are who he created us to be, and we need to be thankful for that. Now, having said that, don't push back this morning. Having said that, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that there are not times when it's appropriate in our lives to try to improve ourselves because it certainly is something that we all need to do. We all need to be on a constant quest to try to improve our lives. But at the same time, foundationally in our lives, we have to understand that God made us to be just the way we are, exactly who we are. And the first step, we're starting at square one, the first step to developing the habit of being more thankful is to be thankful for who we are. Write down next to number two. Let me give you a second practical step this morning from Psalm 71. Write down these words. Remember what God has done for you. Remember what God has done for you. That's step number two. Thomas Merton once said, and I'll put the quote up on the screen so you can see it. He once said, to be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. In other words, every good thing in our life is a gift that comes from God. Now, no doubt Thomas Merton, who was a preacher, got his inspiration for that quote from the Scriptures because the Scriptures say the same thing. Look at these words on the screen from James chapter 1 and verse 17. James says, every good and perfect gift is from, say the next word with me, above. In other words, it comes from God, and he makes that clear when he says, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from God above. We need to remember that because a big part of developing the habit of thankfulness is simply learning to recognize and acknowledge all the many gifts that God brings into our lives. The psalmist does that in Psalm 71. He does it in a couple of ways. Look back at verse 15 if you've got your Bibles open there still. I love this verse. The psalmist says, my mouth will tell of your righteousness of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I love that verse. 
Look at it. Just look at it. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of all the rightness of who you are. My mouth will tell of your salvation, of all the blessings of the salvation that you give. Though I know not its measure, though it's limitless in nature, no matter how much I talk about it, no matter what I say, it only scratches the surface of the depth of the reality of your righteousness and the goodness and the blessing of your salvation. He's talking about being thankful for the gifts that God has brought into his life. And then you look down at verse 19. In verse 19, he says, Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things. And I love this last phrase, Who, O God, is like you? Let me give you the straight-up truth for every one of us who are here this morning, for everyone who is listening wherever you might be. God has blessed each and every one of us in thousands of ways, probably tens of thousands of ways, and that might not even be a high enough number. And most of the time, we don't even recognize the blessings, and we don't even acknowledge them. He puts people in our lives that bless us. He provides us with every physical need that we have. He he protects us. Even when we don't know we're in danger, He shows us mercy when we don't deserve it. Last night when the service was over, I had a woman come down to talk to me afterwards, and she told me a story from her life where she was in a very dangerous situation, and she didn't know it at the time. It was only until she got down the road in life and looked back that she realized how dangerous her situation was and how dangerous the people were that were surrounding her in her life. And she said, I can't believe as I look back how good God was in protecting me in all of this. And it made me think as I was walking away, we would be horrified, most of us, we would be terrified if we realized that the times in our lives when we or our loved ones were in danger, but we didn't even know it at the time, and God was protecting us. There's got to be hundreds and thousands of those kinds of experiences in all of our lives, but this is the goodness of God. So every one of us needs to find some quiet time in our lives on a routine basis where we sit and we look back at our lives and we just are thankful for the many ways that God has guided us, that God has provided for us, that God has protected us, and that God has blessed us. We need to identify what David, who wrote so many of the Psalms, what David called in another Psalm, the pleasant places God has created in our lives. In fact, write those words down in your notes if you're taking notes. Pleasant, the pleasant places that God has provided for us in our lives. He writes about that reality in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. Let's put them up on the screen and we'll look at it. I love Psalm 16. It's a great psalm, but I love this part in particular. He says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion. Now, stop right there. Okay. When I read that first line, it says, Lord, you have assigned, assigned me my portion, and he goes on to say, in my cup. Then that, to me, says he's acknowledging that God has done some things in his life that he has absolutely no control over, right? He says, God, you have assigned me my portion. Not God, we work together to create my portion. God, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. And then he goes on to say, and you have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me, and here it is. In pleasant places, surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, he's saying that as he looks back at his life, what he's focusing his attention on are the pleasant places that God has created for him in his life. Now, David wrote this. If you know anything at all about David's life in the Bible, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know anything at all about his biographical life, you know that David lived a kind of a crummy life. He had a lot of crummy things that happened to him. And when David was writing Psalm 16, he could have chosen to write about all the bad things that happened in his life. He could have said, God, you made me the youngest in my family, and nobody respected me. 
While all my brothers were at home uh, and doing uh, uh, things at home and the comfort of home, I was the one who was sent out to be a shepherd. I was the one who lived the life of a lowly shepherd. It was almost like I was in exile in my own family. He could have said, God, when you sent the prophet Samuel to my father Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, my family didn't even respect me enough to call me in from the field so that I could stand in line with my brothers with the possibility of being chosen. They didn't even think highly enough of me to do that. He could have said, God, when I was just a teenager, I found myself in the Valley of Ella, and I was faced off with a Philistine giant because nobody else was willing to fight that battle. He could have said, God, when I won that battle and I was taken to the palace by King Saul, I should have been a national hero for the rest of my life. But Saul became jealous of me, and he began to chase me, and he began to pursue me, and he tried to kill me, not once, not twice, but three different times. And I spent a portion of my life as a fugitive on the run in the wilderness. He could have said, God, I lost my best friend in the whole world. He said, could have said, God, I lost my first wife. He could have gone on and on and on. And you know what? Every one of those things was absolutely true. Every one of them. And he could have said, these were the boundaries have fallen for me in all these negative places. But that's not what he chose to think about, is it? He chose to think about the good things. He said, they've fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, we need to be thankful for what God has done for us. Have you had some bad experiences in your life? Absolutely. I'm sure you have. Have I? Absolutely. Things that I would have never chosen on my own, things that were difficult to walk through, you have as well. But being thankful is dependent upon what it is we choose to think about because God has blessed all of us in innumerable ways, and we need to think about those things. You know, I didn't put this in the PowerPoint, but I want you to write down this passage of Scripture in your notes. I want you to write down Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. This is what that passage says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your is your faithfulness. Now, here's a really cool thing about that verse. You know that it's found in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. The Old Testament was really written in Hebrew. And so the word that's used for new there in the Hebrew language, when he says they are new every morning, talking about the mercies of God being new every morning, the word that's used in the Hebrew is the word hadash. Now, if you want to write it down in your notes, here's the English way it's spelled, C-H-A-D-A-S-H, C-H-A-D-A-S-H, but it's pronounced hadash. And here's what it means. Everybody listen to me close. It means literally something new. It's not new in time. It's something never before experienced new. That's what it means. And so when you realize that and you think about the significance of what the passage is saying, you get a little hundred and eleven days old. Now, do you know what that means? That means I have experienced some new never have experienced before mercy of God in my life 21,211 times. You need to go home today and figure out how old you are in terms of days. And just do the math. The mercies of God, the new never to have been experienced before mercies of God in your life every day, every day of your life. We need to be thankful for what God has done for us, the good things God brings in our lives. Okay, I spent too much time talking about that. Right now, next to number three. 
The third thing we get from Psalm 71, the third really practical principle about how we can live more thankful lives is commit to living in the moment. Commit to living in the moment. We all have this dilemma that faces us every day. We need to remain connected enough to the past so that we can remember what God has done for us. We just talked about the need of that. But at the same time, we don't want to live in the past, right? Everyone say right. We don't want to live in the past. Well, the flip side of that is we need to be focused enough on the future so we can make sure that we're going in the direction that God wants us to go. But we don't want to live in the future. What we really need to do is live in the moment. Too many people are unable to appreciate what God is doing for them today because they're still haunted by the past. I know people, and I'm sure you do as well, who haven't been able to get over the bitterness of a divorce or pick up the pieces of a failed or a lost business or get over being treated unfairly uh, by someone or they're unable to forgive themselves for a past mistake. At the same time, there are a lot of people who are unable to appreciate what God is doing for them in the moment because they're obsessed with the future and they're anxious and worried and nervous about the future. Somehow, we've got to find the right balance between being connected to the past and being hopeful about the future so that we can live in the moment. And in Psalm 71, we get the answer on how to do that. Look at verse 8. The psalmist says, My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. That's what we need to do. That's how you live in the moment. You declare the splendor of God all day long. Every day, every day in your life, you think about all of the goodness of who God is and the goodness that God brings into your life. Let's just use our imagination for a moment. Let's say that uh, we're driving down a road and let's, oh, let's say eastern Tennessee, that's a beautiful part of the country. And it's just this incredible fall morning. We're driving down on a winding two-lane road and there's nobody else on the road. That's the only way we can really enjoy this. <clears throat> we're, we're driving down this winding two-lane road. We're surrounded by foothills and mountains. They're covered with beautiful colors of yellow and orange and red, all the colors of the leaves that are characteristic of the season. It's like you're driving through a postcard. I mean, it's just incredibly beautiful. The sun is shining. The air is crisp. It couldn't be a better day. But at the same time, our mind is filled with nothing, about, nothing but disappointment from the past or nothing but anxiety for the future. And let's even imagine that we catch ourselves in that situation literally thinking to ourselves, man, it's really too bad. I can't enjoy this day and all the beauty that's surrounding me because I'm spending so much time thinking about and we name the disappointment of the past or we name the anxiety of the future. Now, sitting on this side of the story, in this setting, we think about that, and we think, well, anybody who would do that would be f so foolish. They would be so stupid. It would be idiotic to do that. But the truth is, that's where many of us live our lives every single day. What's the answer to that? Again, it's the, psalm, it's the words of Psalm 71.8. The psalmist says, my mouth is filled with your praise declaring your splendor all day long. That's how we live in the moment. We talk about God and what God is doing, who God is and what God is doing each and every day in the moment, the things that we're thankful for. Let me ask you this question. If, if I, let me just say this. What's one thing that you're thankful for right now today? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's one thing that you're thankful for right now today? Whatever it is, you should write it down on your notes today. Just, just write it down just as a reminder. You know what? I can tell you, every morning when I wake up, and I can say this with integrity because this is true, every morning when I wake up, I have the same thought that runs through my mind every single day. The first thing I think is, God, thank you for another day of life. 
Because I don't take life for granted. None of us should. Because none of us has the promise of tomorrow. God, thank you for another day of life. All right. Write down next to number four, and we'll get this to a close. The fourth practical thing that I see from Psalm 71 about how we develop the habit of thankfulness is we need to tell others about the goodness of God. I look back at Psalm 71, verses 15 through 17, and this is what the psalmist writes. My mouth will tell, he's talking to God, my mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone, since my youth, O God, you have taught me. And to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Now, I really think there are two benefits of doing this, talking about the goodness of God, making sure that we tell other people about the goodness of God. The first is the benefit of witnessing to others, which is something that we're all called to do. Now, let's be honest today. I don't know how often you do that. I'm sure there are people here in this service, people listening to me across the street or online, who you've been involved in literally witnessing or giving a testimony to other people before about God. But I'm also, I'm also sure that there are people here today who have never done that. You've never witnessed anybody about your faith or about uh, the message of salvation or anything like that because it's a very frightening prospect to you. And there's a part of that that I understand because if you, if you really witness to somebody about salvation, witness to somebody about God and God's gift of salvation, then there's some hard things that you have to talk about. You have to talk about the reality of sin because the Bible says that this is our problem. We're separated from God because of our sin. Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't become a Christian until you admit that you're a sinner. It's the first step. You've got to talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. You have to talk about the suffering and the agony and the pain of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because that's the only thing that can pay the penalty for our sin, that can satisfy God's need for justice with regard to our sin. You've got to, if you talk to somebody about the steps of salvation, you've got to talk about their need to repent and change their life. You've got to talk about some difficult things. And so because of that, I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening to me right now. You've never witnessed anybody at all. But here's what I want to tell you. While you have, if you're really going to witness to somebody, there's a point where you have to talk about those things. That's not where the conversation has to begin. The conversation can begin witnessing to somebody. The conversation can begin with just talking to somebody and telling them about the goodness of God. Listen to me really close. We got to, some of us got to get over this sense that our responsibility, our first responsibility with people is to correct them. Our first responsibility is to connect with them. There's a reason why unbelieving people in the world have such a negative opinion of Christians. Why people, they say, why so many people say that Christians are mean and angry and hateful and judgmental because sometimes we deserve that. Our first responsibility is to connect, not to correct. It's through the connection that we get the freedom and the permission to share the truth of somebody's life. Think about Jesus and how Jesus treated people, how Jesus treated the most sinful people, the people that were the furthest from God that he met in his life. What did he do? He found a way to connect with them. And for you and me, it can be as simple as just talking about the goodness of God, telling people <clears throat> about the goodness of God, I bet you every one of us this morning could give a testimony to a time in our life when we went such a diff through such a difficult trial that we would have to say, there's no way I could have made it apart from the Lord. 
Apart from the strength of God, I couldn't have gone through this. I couldn't have faced this sickness. I couldn't have faced this loss. I couldn't have faced this disappointment. I couldn't have faced this betrayal. Whatever it might be, we just know that apart from our relationship with God, there was no way we could have survived. Well, every single person you know has the same story. And maybe they need to hear you say that it was only because of the strength of God that you were able to get through it. That's what they need to hear. And that might make them think, you know what? There really is something missing in my life. And that might open up the door for the Holy Spirit to begin to work in their life to convict them of their need, which is what the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. So the first benefit of just talking about the goodness of God, telling others about the goodness of God, is the benefit of witnessing, which is, we're all, which is something we're all called to do. Second, there's the benefit of just continuing to develop the habit of thankfulness. Because you know what? Anytime I tell somebody about how good God is, it just reinforces His goodness in my heart over and over and over again. Isn't that your experience as well? Okay, Tyson, you come and we'll bring this to a close. We just need to ask the question, what if I were more thankful and the way we become more thankful is we develop the habit of being thankful by doing all of these things that we've talked about this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor and theologian who died in a Nazi war camp in 1945, once said, in ordinary life, we hardly realize that we receive a great deal more than we give and that it is only through thankfulness that life becomes rich. I want you to listen to me real close this morning. If you don't remember anything else I've said, I want you to remember this. You have the power to change your life and to change your world right now today simply by choosing to be more thankful. Change your life and change your world. Let's pray.